0: Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that makes it easy to enter uncomfortable conversations about race, racism, and all those topics that you're probably thinking about and don't know how to talk about. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha.
1: So today, tell me, we're going to talk about police in general. And you and I, Misasha, are both half Japanese and half white. You are married to a black man and all of us have very mixed race kids. Miss Asha, what did you see when you saw the video of George Floyd being killed by a police officer?
0: Yeah, you know, that is really tough. And I think what's hard to explain is the feeling that you have or that I had and that I'm sure a lot of other mothers had when you are a mother to Black presenting sons, is that you see your child's heads on the ground, you see their necks under that policeman's knee. I saw my husband's head there. You know, when he's asking for his mother, I heard them saying my name. And that is the most crushing feeling that I think you can feel as a mother that you see your children being murdered, and you can't help.
1: I had to give that a moment of silence there. Because that kills me every time I've heard you say that before. And every time it makes me want to cry. So the reason we're going to talk about the police today is in a different context than what I think a lot of people are talking about them. And it's about the history. And I'm just curious, just to put this in broader context, when has understanding the history of something changed your perspective on it?
0: Uh, That's a great question. And when you say history of something, I think back to my fourth grade class, because we were studying World War II at the time. And I think this was the first time we had really studied, you know, who was in World War II, what were the battles like, and we had talked about Germany, and then we were focusing on Japan and the Pacific Theater. And it was one of the first times in that I had conceptualized that half of my family was on one side of this war, and half of them were on the other. And the reactions from some of the kids in class were very anti-Japanese, because they were the enemy, they were the other And they had bombed Pearl Harbor, because that was specifically what we were talking about. And I remember feeling taken aback, I think, for lack of a better word. I was shocked because I was hearing these sentiments and just thinking like, but this is part of me. And so that was the first time that I really thought about, well, what does that mean for me? Like, how does my perspective feel different than someone else in my class?
1: I love that. And I think that's, you know, partly why I wanted to talk about this angle, too, of the history. We both wanted to talk about this angle of the history of the police force, because I think we need to understand where it came from. So we understand why what's happening now is happening. And so we're really glad you're here listening to the podcast, because it means you're curious and learning and reflecting on things that will open all of our eyes to what's happening around us, too. And in terms of what's happening right now, we've been hearing a lot about defund the police. Defund the police does not mean exactly what it sounds like. And just like the history of policing in the United States is exponentially more complex than it seems at first glance. And so we're not here at this point to argue the pros and cons of this, quote, defund the police movement, although we do have a viewpoint on it. What we love to do in general on this show is to unpack the why behind things, the history behind things, so we can better understand why and what's really happening right now. And so that's why today we're looking at a big historical question that's central to this whole argument about the police. And that is, why were police formed in the United States to begin with? For some of us, you might assume that policing in the U.S. is as old as the country itself. It's just been the fabric of this country forever. That's not actually the truth. And so what is the truth? We're glad you asked.
0: So as Time magazine notes, the U.S. police force is a relatively modern invention sparked by sort of changing notions of public order, which are driven by two main drivers, economics and politics. And this is according to Gary Potter, who's a crime historian at Eastern Kentucky University and apparently has studied the police and the history of our modern police in depth. So according to him, policing in colonial America had been very informal. So we're taking it way back sort of to the, you know, Revolutionary War era to and even earlier than that. And this was based on a for profit, privately funded system that employed people part time. Towns also commonly relied on a night watch kind of like your neighborhood watch except probably a little more organized because volunteers signed up for a certain day and time mostly to look out for fellow neighbors engaging in prostitution or gambling. So that was the primary things that they were looking out for. What they were going to do when they found those people doing that unclear, but anyway, that's what they were looking out for. So Boston had started one of these in 1636, New York followed in 1658, and Philadelphia created one of these night watch systems in 1700. But as you're probably realizing, as I'm saying this, this, that system wasn't very efficient because the watchmen often slept and drank while on duty. And it wasn't always a volunteer system because there were some people who were put on watch duty as a form of punishment. So night watch officers were supervised by constables, but that wasn't exactly a highly sought after job either. So because early policemen didn't want to wear badges because those guys had bad reputations to begin with, and they also didn't want to be identified as people that other people didn't like. So that was a big problem. And even identifying yourself as a police officer. And then when they were like, they decided, well, you know, why don't we just make people do it? Economics laid apart. Because if you were rich enough, says, you know, Potter, you paid someone to do it for you. And ironically, the person that you paid to do it was probably a criminal themselves. So clearly some inefficiencies and problems in this informal system. As the nation grew, however, the U.S. became no longer sort of a series of small cities and rural hamlets because urbanization and the growth of cities was occurring faster and faster. And this old informal neighborhood watch and constable system wasn't going to be enough to really stop disorder. But keep in mind that what constitutes social and public order and disorder largely depends on who's the one defining those terms. And I think that's true to this day. Sure. At that point, Anecdotal evidence and the evidence that we have from first-person sources suggests increasing crime and vice in urban centers, right? And so now we're moving sort of forward into a broader look at the U.S., moving past the Revolutionary War in those early times, now closer towards the 1800s. Mob violence, particularly violence directed at that time at immigrants and African-Americans by white youth, occurred with some frequency. Public disorder which was defined at that time as mostly public drunkenness, and sometimes prostitution was more visible and less easily controlled in growing urban centers than it had been in rural villages. But still, evidence of an actual crime wave or you know just widespread crime all over was lacking. So if you're looking at where we are today and why the modern police force was created, it wasn't really a direct response to crime. So then what was it a response to? And what people have theorized is that it was an economic response to protecting money and wealth. So in the cities now in 1800s, in 19th century America, social and public order, remember it's defined by who's doing, it's very subjective, right? Who's defining it? And it was largely defined at that time by the interest of people who had the money who through taxes and political influence weighed in using that influence to make sure their interests were protected. They pooled their money to outsource some sort of state run control to make sure that their businesses were operating and their economic interests were protected. So basically they had a vested interest in making sure they were going to stay rich and they paid people to make sure that that was going to happen by combating disorder which is what they defined as anything that was going to stop them from continuing to make money.
1: That's so interesting.
0: Right. And because now if we're in the 1800s, too, we've got two very different sort of groups in our United States, right? We've got the northern cities and we've got the southern cities. So and because these economies of the different regions were different, they developed different policing systems. And so at this point now, we have two separate and distinct systems, the northern one and the southern one. So let's start with the north. In northern cities, increasing urbanization, so the increasing outgrowth of cities away from the rural towards the urban rendered this night watch system completely useless as communities got too big. Because remember, it's informal. People paid criminals to do it. People slept and drank on the job very hard to control. So the first publicly funded organized police force with officers on duty full time was created in Boston in 1838. So like 180 years ago. And this is still, if you're, you know, into history, like I am, this is still 65 years after the Boston Tea Party and the whole, you know, America becomes a country thing. And this is still 30 years prior to the Civil War. So Boston was a large shipping commercial center and businesses had been hiring people to protect their property and safeguard the transport of goods from the port of Boston to other places. And this is according to Gary Potter again. In order to do that, though, these merchants came up with a way to save money by transferring the cost of maintaining a police force. Remember, they were paying for that themselves to the citizens as a whole by saying that this is something for the collective good right? So they didn't have to pay. It's very tricky, right? Suddenly, it's in everyone's best interest to, you know, support or fight against disorder. You see my air quotes here. And what was disorder then? Right, the failure to protect economic interests of the wealthy.
1: Little uh, critical thinking would be useful there, right? To be like, hmm, is it really for the collective good? So let's contrast that to the South, because the economics that drove the creation of police forces there were not centered on the protection of shipping interests like they were in the North, but they were on the preservation of the slavery system. So the American South relied almost exclusively on slave labor, and white Southerners lived like, in a lot of fear of slave rebellions that would disrupt their economic status quo. And as a result, slave patrols were one of the earliest and most prolific forms of early policing in the South. The responsibility of the patrols was pretty straightforward. I mean, they were basically supposed to control the moods and behaviors of enslaved populations. And again, according to Potter, slave patrols served three main functions. ready for these? Number one, to chase down, apprehend, and return to their owners the runaway slaves. Number two, to provide a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts. And three, to maintain a form of discipline for slave workers who were subject to summary justice outside the law. So slave patrols were not really designed to protect public safety in the broadest sense, but rather to protect white wealth. And that comes from Seth Soten, a law professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and a former police officer in Tallahassee, Florida, whose research has focused on excessive police force. Organized policing was one of the many types of social controls imposed on enslaved African-Americans in the South. You know, think about that time period. Physical and psychological violence took so many forms, including like an overseer's brutal whip, the intentional breakup of families, deprivation of food and other necessities, and the private employment of slave catchers to track down runaways. Along those lines, slave patrols were no less violent in their control of African-Americans and slave owners. They beat people. They terrorized people. But the distinction there was that they were legally compelled to do so by local authorities. So in this sense, it was considered a civic duty, one that in some areas could result in a fine if you didn't do it. You were supposed to intimidate the
0: slaves. That's amazing that you're actually fined if you're not beating and intimidating slaves into submission. Right,
1: right. So in other areas, like patrollers received financial compensation for their work, and typically slave patrol routines included enforcing curfews, checking travelers for permission pass, catching those assembling without permission, and preventing any form of organized resistance. So as historian Sally Haddon writes in her book, Slave Patrol's Law and Violence in Virginia and the Carolinas, the history of police work in the South grows out of this early fascination by white patrollers with what African American slaves were doing. Most law enforcement was, by definition, white patrolmen watching, catching, and beating black slaves.
0: Oof.
1: I can't even. I just... Right? So this is like, it's built into the fabric of how policing began in this country.
0: Yeah. I think it's impossible to separate that from how we have developed our police force.
1: Right. And I think the the biggest thing for me so far that I have like been surprised by was the fact that it was created at the beginning to protect economic interests. It wasn't about, am I safe walking down the street? It was about, is my business going to make enough money? Do I have control over the things I need to have control for me? Because everybody, there was no Macy, I employed by somebody else. You had your own economic interests that you had to look out for you to make sure you had food. And so I was really surprised to learn this, that it's about the economic interests.
0: Well, and I think that you know, we think of police as as a civic good, right? A lot of times I think how we've been taught about the police force is that it is a civic good and that it's something for all citizens. And I think for me, the privatization or how the rise of police in our country was basically privately funded and later sort of brought to everyone through taxation because it was sold as a common good. But the economic interest protecting, you know, wealthy business owners in the North and wealthy business owners in the South through maintaining their system of free labor, that being the driving force, I think is huge and huge for all of us to understand.
1: Right. Well, and then you think about what we use police for now, and it's like we use the police to patrol so much more now, But it's important to remember where they came from and what biases were built into the system to begin with. So let's talk a little bit about how police became patrollers or police in the first place. Because you have the people they were regulating, who were the people who were doing, you know, like the top and bottom, if you will, of the hierarchy chain here. And the process of how somebody became a patroller differed throughout the colonies. So some governments ordered local militias to select patrollers from their rosters of white men in the region within a certain age range in some areas and a lot of areas patrols were made up of lower class and wealthy landowning white men alike other areas pulled names from the lists of local landowners and interestingly in 18th century south carolina landowning white women were included in the potential list of names and if they happened to be pulled Their names were pulled to, you know, be on duty. They were given the option to identify a male substitute to patrol in their place.
0: I found that so interesting too. That if you're a landowning white woman in the South, you could be part of this slave patrol
1: Mm -hmm. during the Civil War in the South. The military became the primary form of law enforcement in the South, but during Reconstruction, which, if you remember, is the post-Civil War era, many local sheriffs functioned in a way like the earlier slave patrols. Enforcing segregation and the disenfranchisement of free slaves. African Americans were still heavily policed by law enforcement officials, especially in areas that passed black codes, which are like laws that restricted property ownership, employment, and other behaviors. And there are also the areas that saw the rise of that very first wave of the KKK. And if you remember, we talked about the KKK in this like three part arc talking about domestic terrorism. And they were episodes 31, 32, and 33, if you're interested in listening to them. But basically, these Black Codes were essentially the slave codes just reworked to remove keywords like slavery. And they remained in effect until the 14th Amendment in 1868. And then those morphed into Jim Crow laws, which ding, 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 just a momentary. Like, I'm so excited for this book. We launched a Patreon, folks, to support the fact that we want to do a book club and we want to talk to you about these things and really engage with you to reflect. And so we're doing the new Jim Crow as part of the book club. And so join the conversation over at our Patreon link if you would like to take part. But anyway, you get the picture. Like all of these waves basically continued racism. It was going strong through all the the South.
0: So I think also, you know, we're looking at the South and now we go back to the North because who made up the police force in the Northern cities is different than the South but no less harmful when it comes to thinking about systemic racism and how that has continued to be built and woven into the fabric of pretty much everything in our society. So let's put into context, we're moving back a little bit from the Civil War and talk about the late 1840s in the North. The immigrant population of Europeans, particularly the Irish, were generating in their own way a similar kind of social anxiety, xenophobic, nativist, racist reaction to what Blacks in the South were used to with slave patrols. And what antebellum black folks had been used to who were free in northern cities in terms of how they were being surveilled and how they were being controlled. So you basically got free blacks and a lot of European immigrants put in the same boat. The populations that made up early police officers in the north were unlike the slave patrols in the south because they were mostly made up of lower class men, often men who are first generation Americans. So, these immigrants, in other words, there was an early emphasis on people whose status was just a tiny notch better than the folks who they were focused on policing. And so, you get the Anglo Saxons, sort of the English, Scottish, they're policing the Irish, or the Germans are policing the Irish. The Irish are policing people from Poland. Black people are getting policed by everyone, but their numbers are fewer. And so it's this dynamic that's playing out in the North and that police officers here are a critical feature of establishing a racial hierarchy, even among white people at that time.
1: And you do see people being like, I've seen this response to Black Lives Matter with saying, well, Irish Lives Matter, too. And you realize that that's where this comes from, that period of time. So many hundreds of years ago, when Irish people were discriminated against, too, and were at the bottom of the hierarchy. Obviously, it's different. Black Lives Matter. It's like, let's not dilute that message. But I think I've seen that on social media lately, and it makes sense now why people are saying that. But I think what's most striking about this period that you were just talking about me, Sasha, is like when free blacks came to the North, because there were clearly slave patrols in the South. And if you've seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, that's the story of a free New York born black man, Solomon Northrop, who was kidnapped by two con men in Washington, D.C. in 1841 and sold into slavery. But that shows that what was happening in the South was not isolated to the South. And I think it's an important thing to realize there wasn't like this clear difference in mindset in the North versus South towards Black people. It's not like, oh, Northerners, we love Black people, and you Southerners hate Black people. It's not, we are better. It's just these other people who have this bad belief in the context of racism or systemic racism in this country. The entire country has had systems that have perpetuated white supremacy and systemic racism. And that includes how Blacks were treated once they crossed the Mason-Dixon line.
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to remember that even in the northern police hierarchy of, you know, people policing the people who are just one rung below them on that social class ladder, Black people were always at the bottom. And so that in the north and in the south was strikingly similar. According to an amazing episode of the NPR podcast, Throughline, which we are putting as a calendar resource for this week, it's that amazing. So if you have not signed up for our calendar, please do so. Black people made up less than 5% of the populations of big northern cities until the second and third decade of the 20th century, which is sort of that great migration period, which began during World War I in the 1910s. And at that point, you start to see the populations doubling from two to percent to 4% to 8%. But as we just talked about, you know, police in the north saw blacks from the south and blacks who were returning from wars who had fought for the country in the same way that their white neighbors and community peers did, which is with contempt and hostility. So they were a small population in the north, but growing, although the viewpoint or how they were treated by their white neighbors was not changing and in fact was getting more hostile. And in addition, according to Throughline, what was also key in these early policing times was the link between police and politicians. So remember, we said there were a couple of drivers behind the police force. One was economics and one was political because the police often played the role of strong arm enforcers of underground political activities. And I'm thinking in particular of Tammany Hall and Chicago, because they were very prone to corruption at that point, because they were being paid often by politicians to sort of act as this modern day gang. They offered protection. They were policing communities, not necessarily for crime-related reasons, but because they were made up of inferior racial groups, according to whoever was paying them, or political enemies and so forth. So there was clearly a political bent, too, in who the police were policing and why. Throughline theorizes that the function of the police was to control essential workers in the early centuries of this country. And I think essential workers have become have come into such sharp focus recently through COVID-19 that this is a really important point. The people at the bottom of the economic hierarchy were meant to be policed in ways that weren't entirely about kicking them out of the country because they were still really important in the fabric of who was gonna do what job in the United States. Those immigrants were here precisely because they were expected to build the infrastructure of these modern cities, just like slaves in the South were expected to drive the economy through cotton production and sugar production and tobacco production. So what police were doing largely was ensuring that these people who were these essential workers, often poor, lower class, considered individuals had minimal freedom beyond what was required for them to do their jobs. In other words, police officers were built to police the poor, no matter who they were. And that relates to free Blacks, that relates to slaves in the South, that relates to immigrants at the bottom sort of rung of the American caste system here.
1: Two different thoughts came to mind. On that point that you just made in particular, it reminds me of what's happening with our southern border, and this, you know, anger against brown immigrants. And this is going to be a really broad statement, but we're keeping people pinned down. And yet do you like they are a lot of times the people who are doing the work in this country that like cleaning people's houses, like picking fruit in really hot temperatures so that we can still have cheap produce, like I don't know about you, but I don't, I mean, the racial makeup of people who are doing these jobs that are essential are brown. And yet we are talking about limiting their rights, limiting their access, limiting the money. Like that seems like that has continued. So that's really interesting that that's what you were just talking about was from the early 1900s. And here we are a hundred years later, still talking about that. And then that point you made about, you know, the populations increasing in the North and more and more contempt. I mean, that plays into, and we don't have to get into it here, obviously, because that's a whole other topic, but this idea of white flight, right? Like you see a predominantly white school and there's one black kid and they're like the token black kid. Oh, they're welcome. They're part, they're great people. The moment you have like 10, 20, 50% black kids, all of a sudden this, and everybody be honest with yourself. If you have ever thought this or have seen this, like you have a different perception of that school. And so people feel threatened then that the quality is going down. That's what happened with white flight in certain cities to the suburbs. Like, this is the beginning of that.
0: Yeah, I think you can trace redlining in a lot of ways to this exact same feeling and this contempt and fear as cities became more urban and you have a whole bunch of systems at work, but systems largely designed to keep people in their place, in heavy air quotes. And what was their place? That was determined by the people who were in charge. And they weren't Black. So, yeah.
1: I mean, let's just say this whole thing has served only to reinforce the systemic racism, which we've said it before. This is where it started in the police force. Because when it's your job to keep people in their place, whether that's stated or not, in order to further economic or political means it's hard for an entire industry, if you will, an entire organization to do a 180 from that foundation to current day, theoretically race blind policies. You know, you have to boldly face the realities of the foundations of the policing system that it was meant to protect the economics interests of the rich. And then you have to consciously create specific policies, procedures, training, all the things that redefine the interest and intent, which we have not seen happen on a broad scale in this country yet. If you believe otherwise, we invite you to sit with what we've just told you and consider your position again. As you can tell, we've got a little, there's a lot more to talk about, but we're going to end our historical look back right around this reconstruction post-Civil War era, because that was the foundation of the modern police force. If you're looking for a bigger historical analysis of the police in America, line does, it looks at that inception of the police force in the U.S. up until close to the present day. So we encourage you to listen. And one of the areas they focus on is post-World War I America, when Black Americans, you mentioned it before me, Sasha, but who had fought for their countries came back into cities that weren't ready for them. Tensions were high in both the North and the South, and that often caused terrible tragedies and explosive race-based riots.
0: You know, and what I think is so powerful about looking into history on a broad scale is that it allows us to look at our own personal history. And in prepping for this episode, I realized that one of our family stories took place right around this time that we're talking about that sort of that edge of, well, post-Reconstruction, but right around when you've got that influx of Blacks into cities that weren't ready for them. But if you take it back to the South, my American grandfather, as I've discussed previously, is from small town Tennessee, like super small town. His parents owned a dry goods store in town, which I'm pretty sure was one of the only ones in town, if not the only one, to give you a sense of how small this town is. They also hit a young Black man in between the bolts of fabric in their store one day, because he was being chased by a group of white men allegedly because he had not stepped out of the way of a white woman. And P.S., he had. Anyway, this white group of men, you know, were chasing him. He ran into the store. They hit him. Once everyone had gone home and the store was closed at night, my great-grandparents got him a horse and some money and had him head north. They later heard from him that he was okay, which is amazing on so many levels. But if you can imagine the race tensions at that time in the South and the North, even who were black people to turn to when something like this happened, it probably wasn't the police. It was ordinary people who were going to put their skin in the game to help, even when it was uncomfortable or risky for them. Ordinary people like you, like me, like us. Look for this week's calendar for more ways to learn about the history that directly influenced and upheld the systemic racism that has continued to affect us now, and for ways that you can start thinking differently about next steps for you, for me, for us.
1: If you love what you're hearing, subscribe to the Dear White Women podcast so you don't miss any of our anti-racist, identity-affirming episodes released every Wednesday. Shows that seek to show that we as humans rise by lifting others. Support our Patreon, which allows us to keep making work that highlights different narratives that help us broaden our horizons, including a new monthly virtual community centered around book studies. Want to follow us on social media? We're at Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Woman Podcast, and we're on Twitter at DWWPodcast. And of course, we'll be sending out vital info and opinions via email, which you can sign up for on our website, www.dearwhitewomen.com. Thanks for being part of the conversation.